Well, I've been speaking to you on this, uh, the subject of the Great Reset. I got the idea from a book. If you have not been here the last few Sunday nights, the book is called COVID-19, The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab and Thierry Mallard, two European economists, engineers, and thinkers. It right now is one of the big selling books in the whole world. It's a secular book, and it's talking about the plans that the globalists have, the people who are committed to bringing about a global governance, as they call it, global government, a one-world government would be what we've traditionally called it. The plans that they have to use the pandemic, the COVID uh, epidemic, to use it as camouflage and cover to bring about this worldwide governance. It's a very important book. It's 280 pages. I haven't read every word of it, but I've read most of it. And what I found striking about the book, it talks about all the great problems of the world. And in 280 pages, it does not one time mention the name of God. So it is a secular manifesto. There's a website that they have. It's called the, uh, the, 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 the organization that they lead is the World Economic Forum. And the World Economic Forum has a website. And I showed you a little video from that website. It, it is so, uh, it's astounding to me that anybody would put that out there thinking that anybody would agree with that. And it has eight things that they plan to do to create global governance by the year 2030. Now, by my calculation, 2030 is less than nine years from now. And so it's, it's a pretty, pretty frightening thing when you begin to analyze what they're saying in this book. It is a call for socialism. You saw in the video that they said, by 2030, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. <laughs> You think you'll be happy if you don't own anything at all? You don't even have a bed to sleep on? But that's, they actually say that. You remember that in the video. You, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. It's the secular manifesto, the dream of this secularist. Well, enough about the book because I preached on it. I carry it up here to simply show you what I'm talking about. But I'm, I'm through with that. I don't care if I ever open it again. It'll be a prompt, prop, if nothing else, in the future. And tonight, I want to show you that God has written a book and that God has a plan for a reset. And he doesn't need COVID to help him out with his plan. He reset this thing already once at the fall when man fell into sin and turned against God and God changed everything from that point. He reset history again at the flood when he pruned the whole tree of humanity down to one family, eight souls, started all over. That was the message last Sunday night. He pruned it again at the second coming of Christ, or he didn't prune it. He reset the, the world again at the cross of Christ. 
And at that time, his son came and died for our sins. And now he's going to, he's going to do it again at the second coming. He's going to reset everything. Now, I want you to open your Bible, though, tonight to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. One-third of your Bible is prophecy. One-third of your Bible, almost, maybe 28%, 29% in that area. So, about every third page in your Bible, as you read it, would be prophetic in some way. Much of the prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled. So, they're not, they were prophecies when uttered. They've been completed. They're not pro prophetic. They're not future now. Now, Daniel chapter 2 is one of the most important prophetic chapters in all the Bible. If you're going to understand prophecy, if you're going to study the future events as given in the Scripture, you must know this chapter that I'm preaching from tonight. It is a basic prophetic chapter. And if you know it, you know God's outline of Gentile world history. Tonight, we're not talking about the Jews, which we often talk about when we speak of prophecy. We're talking about the Gentile world. And so, that's the name of my message to you tonight, God's outline of Gentile world history. I've spoken on this quite a few times off and on through the years, but never has the passage to me had such relevance as it has tonight. This is where we are. So, even if you know this well, well, then I hope that you'll be rechallenged and refreshed with it. And if you don't know it well, you surely need to know Daniel chapter 2 if you're going to know prophetic literature. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, plural, several dreams. Several of them are recorded here in the book of Daniel wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Have you ever had a dream and it was so real and so powerful that uh, you couldn't go back to sleep? It kept you up thinking about it. Probably almost all of us have had that experience. Well, it troubled him, it says here in verse 1. And so he called in all of the wise men, the soothsayers, the magicians, the astrologers, and all those kinds of people. He brought them into the palace, and nobody could tell him what he dreamed. And so finally, somebody told him about Daniel. And they brought in Daniel. And in verse, let's see here, in verse number uh, 26, verse 26, go down there with me in the text. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known unto me the dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel said to him, Yes, I can, king. And Daniel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, told Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was about. Let's look at it. In verse 31, and I'm going to go quickly, so follow me in your text. Thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image. And so, the dream involved an image, a great statue, if you will, 
a Colossus, uh, the image of a man, 30, 40 feet tall, a huge thing. This great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before you, and the form thereof was terrible, overwhelming, and awesome. And then Daniel describes to Nebuchadnezzar in detail what Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream. The head was of fine gold. And then as you move down the body of the image, his breast, his chest, and arms were of silver. His belly and his thighs were of brass. His legs were of iron down to the feet, and his feet were part iron and part clay. A strange-looking combination of metals, if you will, composed this, this image. And then Daniel said, after you saw the image, verse 34, you saw a stone was cut out made without hands. Now, a stone that is cut out without hands is supernatural. And the stone smote the image upon his feet. And so this stone rolls across, if you will, this image and hits his feet that were made of the iron and the clay. And of course, iron and clay would not adhere very well. They would not stick together. They don't combine. The image rolled across the, or the, the stone rolled across the feet of the image, and he broke them in pieces. And of course, with the feet broken, the image tumbled to the ground. It fell. And then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together. So everything about the image then is broken. It is, the stone rolls over it and, it and it crushes, it destroys the entire image here, all the pieces of it. In fact, it grinds them to powder. In verse number 35 again, they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And it broke up the pieces of the image so much that the wind carried it away and no place was found for them. And then the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. Now, maybe there in your Bible, you want to circle the word mountain. The word mountain in the Bible often is, is used to refer to a kingdom. A king's dominion or a kingdom is often that mountain symbolism is very important there. So the stone that smote the image rolled over, crushed it into dust, and the wind blew it all away. The stone became a great mountain, a great kingdom, and it filled the entire earth. And I wrote right there in the margin of my Bible, God's global governance. God said, one kingdom, one government takes over the whole world, and it's the stone kingdom, if you will. This is the dream and now I'm going to tell you the interpretation of it in verse number 36. And so Daniel begins with the interpretation here. Now, before we go through to the interpretation of the, of the passage, I want to remind you that this image represents the great world kingdoms, the Gentile kingdoms that have ruled the entire 
world throughout history. So this is an outline of Gentile world powers, the times of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus referred to them as when he was speaking about them. Before Babylon here, there had been two great world empires, and so they're not counted in these. The first of the great world empires was Assyria, but it's already gone, it's come, and it's gone. And then there is the Egyptian world empire, and it was the great superpower of a period of time, but now at this point, it also has come and it's gone. Now, Daniel is in the Babylonian empire. He speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the head of the Babylonian empire. So, the head of gold is where he is, and he's talking about it in a contemporary manner. We have your little outline there, so there's the image as best we can reproduce it for you. And the two previous empires now have already passed away. I want you to notice something about the image. Every time you come down the image body, the, the metal becomes inferior to the one above it. I mean by that that Silver is less valuable than gold. Bronze is less valuable than silver. Iron is less valuable than bronze. And, of course, iron is much less valuable, and especially if mixed with clay, than is iron. So you see that each kingdom deteriorates, is inferior to the previous kingdom. There are the starting dates of them over there on your right. And so the head of gold represents Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You can look there, and in verse number 38, Daniel says to him at the end of the verse, you are the head of gold. Thou art the head of gold. So there's no doubt about the interpretation. It's not my interpretation. It comes straight out of the Scripture. The head of gold was the, represents the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. That was the most, probably the most autocratic, powerful empire in all of history, we're told. Because Nebuchadnezzar ruled it, he didn't have to call together a council or a, 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 a congress or a parliament or a body of people and ask anybody anything. He could, he could determine on his own. He was an absolute, total autocrat, a dictator in the fullest sense of the word. And so, that was a pure dictatorship, a pure form of power, if you will, represented by gold. And then the chest and arms are silver. In verse number 39, a kingdom shall, another kingdom inferior to thee will come up. Verse 39. And that we know from history that the next great kingdom was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And it actually came and conquered Babylon. And you can read that in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. The story of the handwriting on the wall and all that. That's where the Medo-Persians came in under the dry riverbed. They blocked up the Euphrates River and came under the riverbed. Or in the riverbed under the walls of the city. And they, had, and they completely overwhelmed the people inside and took over in one night. And then it fell. It was destroyed. It was replaced by the Greek Empire. 
You'll find that also in verse 39. A third kingdom of brass shall bear rule over all the earth. And that's the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And you know, he was the military genius who conquered all the known world, the civilized world. And then they said he sat down to cry and said, there aren't any more worlds for me to conquer. And he was depressed about it. In fact, he became a terrible alcoholic. He was just really, he, he, he spent his days and nights drunk. And he died, he drank himself to death when he was about 30, 32, 3 years old because uh, he was depressed. There wasn't anything else to conquer for him. Interesting character, great, one of the great characters of history. And then you come down to 27 B.C. That's sort of an arbitrary date, but that's about when the Roman Empire uh, assumed its greatest power, when Julius Caesar became the Caesar, the emperor of the empire. And you see it there in verse 40. The fourth kingdom will be strong as iron. It's likened to iron because of its strength. Because iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron breaketh all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And then we get to the feet. There's no date because the feet empire here is not a separate empire. It is a continuation. It is a revival, if you will, of the Roman empire. As we go down through that image, we're moving forward in history. So the most ancient part of the image is the gold. The Babylonians followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, and then followed by Rome. And there is no date for the new empire there, the iron and clay portion of it, because it's a continuation of Rome. It's not a new empire in the real sense of the word. It represents the condition of Rome at the end of the Roman Empire because Rome, this, this, is, this is unusual about Rome. If you understand this, it helps you so much with, with understanding Scripture. You see, Rome was never conquered. Babylon was conquered. The Persian Empire was conquered. The Greeks were conquered. But Rome simply fell apart. It was so morally corrupt that it disintegrated from the inside. You've all heard about Gibbon's history of the Roman Empire, and he lists the things that caused it to fall apart. Often that's used as a parallel from what's been happening in America, that many of those same qualities are true in our society today. And Rome was never really conquered from without. It collapsed from the inside morally. Now, you, you hear about, you know, the barbarians are at the gates and the Attila the Hun or whoever it was, some of those ancient figures, I don't think it was him, but someone like him, they came down and they came to the gates of Rome. But actually, the empire had already disintegrated and fallen apart. And so they came, basically, they sacked it. They, they, they robbed the valuables there, but they never really tried to stay and govern it. They just exploited the wealth of it, and then they left. And so Daniel gets to chapter, to verse 44, and he continues now into the future. And here's what he says in verse 44. In the days of these kings shall 
the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, set up by the God of heaven. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So, as I said, the Roman Empire never really vanished. It never was destroyed. It just kind of went away. In fact, the Roman Empire in many ways exists in some forms today. If you go to Italy or France or Britain or Germany or Spain, you'll still see remnants of the Roman Empire. For example, you'll see aqueducts that come over the highways carrying water from one city to another. And if you're there with somebody that knows the landscape, they'll say, the Romans built that. And it's not unusual to find stuff all over those countries that I just named, Western Europe, that they're things that were built by the Romans themselves. It, Rome exists still today in the laws of those countries. Rome exists in the languages of those countries. If you learn to speak Spanish or French or uh, German, and much of English is based upon the Latin. Latin was the language of Rome. And so, and there are customs that people are doing still today, particularly in Western Europe, and, and they date all the way back to Rome. Why do you do that? Where, where did that come from? Well, you begin to test it out. It came from Rome itself. So the Roman Empire never completely vanished. It just changed forms. It went from iron, strong, powerful, heavy, it went from that to a mixture of iron and clay, meaning it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, stick together. It, it has no cohesiveness there. Now, a lot of people through history have tried to reconstitute the Roman Empire, to put it back together again. Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire, you remember that from your history? Napoleon tried to bring all of Europe back together. Hitler in more modern times, and Mussolini. And then after that, in our day, we've had the European common market. And now we don't refer to it anymore. We talk about the European Union. And all of these have been efforts to bring together what used to be the Roman Empire. And Daniel is addressing that very subject here. So, Rome still exists. We're in the feet and toes part of the Roman Empire. And after that, there's going to be not another European Empire or human empire. There's going to be a world empire, but it's an empire of the stone. And who is the stone? Well, of course, the stone refers to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms. And it will stand forever, God's global governance. 
And for as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, look what it breaks in pieces. All the kingdoms, not just the Romans, it breaks in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. And so we have Daniel's outline of Gentile world history. Now, go to Daniel chapter 7. I've preached numerous times on chapter 2. I think only maybe once on chapter 7. And so we get to chapter 7 here. And in the first year of Belshazzar, verse 1, now we've changed kings. In the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream himself. And visions of his head upon his bed. And he wrote the dream and he told the sum of the matters. And Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. Here is something you need to know as you read and study Bible prophecy. The sea always represents the nations of the world, the nations of the earth. In Revelation, you have the beast coming up out of the sea again. Here you have a vision of the winds blowing a storm, striving upon the great sea. And notice what happens in verse 3. Four great beasts come up out of the sea. Diverse, different, one from another. And then Daniel has this dream of the four beasts coming out of the nations of the earth. And the first one, the first was like a lion, verse 4 of chapter 7. It had eagle's wings. So you've seen, you've seen that in art, no doubt. A lion with wings. I beheld till the wings were plucked. Plucking the wings is the idea of defeating it. It was lifted from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And then verse 5, he sees another beast. The second one is like a bear. It raised itself up on one side, meaning one side is stronger than the other. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. And so we have here the bear empire. And for the sake of time, let me go back and to the lion. The lion with the wings. The dream, the vision that Daniel is seeing here is the same sequence of events that he saw in chapter number 2. And so the lion represents with eagle's wings... That's Babylon. That's the first and the great empire. The second beast is a bear. He likens it to a bear. And the bear here raised itself up on one side, stronger one on one side than the other, because the Medes and Persian empire, it, it finally became the Persian empire. The Persians were much stronger than were the Medes. And so 
the bear is stronger on the Persian side. It raised itself up on one side. It had three ribs in the mouth of it. Now, I'm not making this up, and I'm not reading into this subjectively because we know what history says. We know that in history that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered three countries to become the Medo-Persian Empire. It conquered Assyria, Egypt, and Lydda. And then in verse number 6, he sees a third beast. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. And this is the Greek counterpart. It had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and it also had four heads. Now, this is strange, isn't it? A leopard, can you imagine? And the leopard has four wings, like a bird of some type, and it has four heads instead of one. Dominion was given unto it. And for a time, of course, the Greek empire was the world-dominating empire. We believe that that four wings there and four heads represent the four generals that succeeded um, Alexander the Great. When he died, the empire was divided into four, between four of his generals. You've, you've probably heard that or seen that in a movie or something. And then we come to verse number six, uh, or pardon me, verse, uh, verse number seven. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Now, this beast is so different, he can't even compare it to anything that, that man knows anything about. He says, the fourth beast is dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. He says, this beast has great iron teeth, which it devours and breaks in pieces, Whatever it attacks, it stamps the residue, what is left over after he eats it. He stamps the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were, up, uh, that were before it, and it had ten horns, ten toes on Rome over in chapter 2, ten now it has ten horns here, ten toes and ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another little horn. So can you picture this horrible beast? It has ten horns on its head. And then there's one little horn that appears on the head. In fact, you'll find that same description in the book of Revelation when we get there in a week or two. And so you have the little horn. And uh, before the little horn, there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So this little horn becomes so powerful that it captures and plucks out three of the horns of the original ten horns, meaning it conquers them. And behold, in this horn, I saw eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, let me tell you who the little horn is. The little horn, circle it in your Bible, that's the Antichrist. The ten horns are ten kings that will be in power in the last days corresponding to the ten toes of the 
of the image in Daniel chapter 2. And out of those ten horns, this one horn comes up and it conquers three of the ten. And what we believe from that is that the Antichrist will come to power at a time when there are ten kings, ten powers, ten countries. We still don't know who that might be. But he will conquer three of them and put together a confederation with enough power that he can begin to take over the entire world. And the Antichrist there is pictured as eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking. Revelation uses that same phrase except it says he's speaking great blasphemies. He is speaking against Jesus Christ. And all of that is happening here in this image, an outline of Gentile world history. Now, we can look back in our history books, and we know about Babylon. You you can dispute me, but you can go back and read the the history book. And we know after Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire. And following the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, we know there was the Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great. And then we know what there was Rome. And we know that Rome just disintegrated. And we know that Rome still remains in some form left over in Western Europe today in those what we call the Romance language-speaking nations, Latin-based. And we know that out of that is going to come this little horn. I remember 20 years ago, all the people who studied the Bible and prophecy, we were excited about the European common market at that time. And there were 10 nations in that when it started out. We even had people saying, well, wow, there it is. There's the 10 kings, 10 nations. Well, it changed. They ended up with 12, and then they ended up with 15 or something, you know. And that theory didn't work out. Now we have the European Union. I don't even know how many countries in it. It doesn't really matter because what there is now is not necessarily what will be at this time. You will notice in here it doesn't say anything about the rapture because that was hidden in the Old Testament. Nobody in the Old Testament understood the rapture. It was a mystery. It had not even been revealed by God at this point in time. So all they saw were the kingdoms as God had revealed them to them, only partial revelation at that time. He talks about this beast here that rises, Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 7. And I read to you the passage already, the ferocity, the iron teeth. Down in verse 19, it says the nails are the, uh, like claws, um, the ten horns are growing out of his head, and the little horn that has eyes and a mouth, and he stamps with residue all the previous kingdoms. In other words, all the kingdoms of history, he overcomes them, and he becomes a one-world government controlled by Satan. Now, in verse 9, we continue, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. And the Ancient of Days, who's the Ancient of Days? That's God the Father, God himself, 
whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, the angelic forces. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. That could only be Almighty God. And I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, verse 13, one likened to the Son of God came with the clouds of heaven. The second coming, not the rapture. And he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before them. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, A-double-L, all nations and people and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The, king, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ where he destroys Satan and all of his works at the end of the tribulation period. The Antichrist empire will be destroyed completely. Where are we in this right now? Well, nobody can say for sure. We certainly don't want to set a date. Nobody knows because it's a, it's a big picture. It's a meta-narrative, as they say today. It's a picture of everything, all in one picture. But here's what we know. We know we're not in Babylon. We know we're not in Medo-Persia. We know we're not in Greece. We know we're not in Rome. So we must be somewhere down there in the feet. We must be somewhere there where the Antichrist could arise. I won't be careful how I say it. I don't know if the Antichrist is alive today on the earth. I don't know if it'll, I don't know how long it will be except that I know all the signs point to us being in a period where the signs of the tribulation are everywhere around us. We're not in the tribulation, thank God. The rapture will keep us from the hour of wrath, the Bible says. However, we know that we live in very perilous times. And we can look around and read the newspaper and read the plans of the globalist. We can watch the news. Where is America? We can't find anything here that would say Amer what either America does not exist or America is insignificant and it doesn't matter if it exists by the time we get to the beast empire. Interesting times we live in, huh? As I was studying for this and other messages, this thought keeps coming unto me. You know, I look at all the Christians of the past as being the great Christians. I talk about all of them. And I, 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 I never think that I'm worthy to, 
I couldn't carry the Bible of John Bunyan or Spurgeon, people like that. Good night. I, I revere them. And yet they're not here. And in God's providence and in God's wisdom, he put us here. We're the ones. Are we going to stand? Or are we going to accommodate ourselves to a godless culture? Are we going to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ or are we going to follow the siren song of the world tonight? Quite a challenge for us. In ourselves, we can't do it. Can't do it. Don't even think you can. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength will be there in your weakness. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we're challenged, aren't we? We're challenged right down to the bottom of our feet because of the times in which we live. I pray that God will give us grace, every one of us, to meet the challenge. Stand to your feet with me, please, and bow your head.